Let's Live for Today is a catchy tune by the Grassroots Band. And it carries a message far too many young people identify with. We were never meant to worry the way that people do. We'll take it nice and easy and use my simple plan. We'll take the most from living, have pleasure while we can. The concept of live for today and forget about tomorrow permeates much of youth culture. It is the nihilistic refrain of meaninglessness. It is the natural outcome of evolutionary theory, which for most people is a replacement for God. And without a creator, there is no purpose, no greater cause, no hope beyond this physical, animalistic existence. So grab all the pleasure you can. But is this truly the way to live your life? Is it the way that produces the greatest happiness? Is a meaningless existence truly fulfilling? While we see the philosophy of meaninglessness thrive in our modern world, Hu Jintao and other Chinese leaders are placing spirituality as a high priority in the new China. They correctly recognize the shortcomings of a self-centered, meaningless existence and how it affects society as a whole. There was a time when some thought religion was only for the uneducated, but millions in China and elsewhere are proving that assumption to be incorrect. However, the question remains, if there is meaning and purpose in life, what is it? Is meaning merely a matter of opinion? Or is there a great purpose established by a creator of all that exists? Stay tuned. Welcome to Tomorrow's World, where we hold out hope for the future, a hope far beyond one's imagination. And I'm not talking here about some vague idea of going to a heavenly retirement home when we die. I'm talking about something you can really get excited about, but something we must prepare for. Contrary to popular teenage misconceptions, most people do wake up tomorrow most of the time. And the book known as the Bible gives this wise instruction. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. The prudent man looks ahead to the future, realizing that the future is coming, and along with it, a lot of opportunities, as well as challenges. The young person who drops out of school or who doesn't take his classes seriously doesn't consider how many future opportunities he is closing off for himself. And what may be a small challenge today may become a huge obstacle in the future if not dealt with today. But the prudent person prepares for his future. As a young man, I thought that only young people could enjoy life. Anyone over the age of 40 was condemned to a life of drudgery. How silly this idea is. I couldn't understand that living a life of accomplishment could produce far greater rewards than the next ball game. But what about you? Are you living only for today? Or are you living your life with the future clearly in mind? 
No matter what your age, the future has a way of arriving sooner than you imagine. Are you preparing for it? Now let me ask you a very important question. Is this physical life the end of your existence? Or in other words, is there life after death? Do you realize the answer to this is either yes or no? Either there is or there isn't. It is difficult, isn't it, to imagine not being anymore, never knowing anything, never having another thought, never relating to anyone, never able to see or hear again. Is it just possible that life after death is possible? If so, think about it. What are you doing now to prepare for it? Will you wake up someday only to realize that you are like the young person who failed to prepare for his future? Is it possible that you, without realizing it, are living only for today? We are all made of something we call matter. We rarely think about it, but what is matter? Where did it come from? To the casual observer, we think of matter as always being here. And after all, hasn't it always been here? Well, scientists who study these things are not so sure. What they are certain of is that it has not always been here in the form that we see it today. Scientists also tell us that matter is made up of atoms, and atoms are composed of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Protons and neutrons make up the nucleus of the atom, while electrons swirl around the nucleus. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail, but here are some interesting things that you may not know about atoms. It was once believed that protons were the smallest particles, if we can call them that, that were in existence. But in 1968, it was speculated that protons are made up of something called quarks. This is now common understanding. As we will see in a moment, quarks are smaller than our minds can imagine. Another thing is that the popular picture that we have of atoms, a cluster of little balls, meaning the nucleus, with other little balls, electrons revolving around it like the moon around the Earth, is not the way that it really is. Instead, electrons revolve around the nucleus more like the blades of a fan spinning at top speed. The difference being that the blades of a fan only appear to be everywhere at once. Some scientists teach us that with atoms, the electrons are literally everywhere at once, yet nowhere in particular at the same time. I don't know about you, but my mind has a very difficult time wrapping around that one. Now let's consider the beginning of all this matter and our universe. The popular conception is that it all began with a big bang. Let me refer to Bill Bryson's book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, to explain just how little of what we call matter there really is. A proton is an infinitesimal part of an atom, which is itself, of course, an insubstantial thing. Protons are so small that a little dib of ink, like the dot on this eye, can hold something in the region of 500 billion of them. So protons are exceedingly microscopic, to say the very least. Now imagine if you can, and of course you can't, shrink one of those protons down to a billionth of its normal size into a space so small that it would make a proton look enormous. Now pack into that tiny, tiny space about an ounce of matter. Excellent. You are ready to start 
a universe. This, according to some scientists, is the point from which the Big Bang occurred. But what caused that initial explosion? And what was there before the bang? And how is it that so little material, one ounce, got squeezed in such a small space, one billionth the size of a proton, and exploded into all the matter that we see today? That is, where you and I, the sun, the moon, and all the stars of the universe came from, according to many scientists. This must mean that matter is not all that solid. After all, that one ounce is spread over the entirety of the universe. And that is why almost all of what we call matter, for example, our own bodies, is empty space and not nearly as solid as it first appears. Again, quoting from Mr. Bryson, it is still a fairly astounding notion to consider that atoms are mostly empty space and that the solidity we experience all around us is an illusion. When two objects come together in the real world, billiard balls are most often used for illustration, they don't actually strike each other. Rather, as Timothy Ferris explains, the negatively charged fields of the two balls repel each other. Were it not for their electrical charges, they could, like galaxies, pass right through each other unscathed. When you sit in a chair, you are not actually sitting there, but levitating above it at the height of one angstrom, a hundred millionth of a centimeter. Your electrons and its electrons implacably opposed to any closer intimacy. While the Bible is not a book of science, it records a fact of science so profound that it took man hundreds of years to fully comprehend. Notice this absolutely amazing statement written nearly 2,000 years ago, long before atoms and their building blocks of protons, neutrons, electrons, and quarks were discovered. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, the point of all this is that our universe is far more mysterious than we might on the surface imagine. And for you and me to exist, it is a miracle. Everything we know about the elements of the earth, laws such as gravity and the balance of all things, should never be taken for granted. Here's what Bryson tells us about just a few, a very few of the things that had to happen just right for us to even be here and for our universe to exist. What is extraordinary from our point of view is how well it turned out for us. If the universe had formed just a tiny bit differently, if gravity were fractionally stronger or weaker, if the expansion had proceeded just a little more slowly or swiftly, then there might never have been stable elements to make you and me and the ground we stand on. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. In one way, our existence is far more mysterious than we can imagine. If we are to assume that we are the result of chance, we must conclude that we are incredibly lucky a fact that Bryson, an avowed believer in evolution, freely admits. If this book has a lesson, it is that we are awfully lucky to be here, and by we, I mean every living thing. To attain any kind of life in this universe of ours appears to be quite an achievement, 
Behaviorally modern human beings, that is, people who can speak and make art and organize complex activities, have existed for only about 0.0001% of Earth's history. But surviving for even that little while has required a nearly endless string of good fortune. Mr. Bryson is clearly looking at life from a naturalistic perspective. He writes nearly 500 pages explaining the miracle of the universe and the miracle of life, yet chalks it all up to good luck or good fortune. At times he goes so far as to say that the building blocks of life are impossible, yet happened. Now suppose he is correct. His concluding paragraph should give us pause to think. We really are at the beginning of it all. The trick, of course, is to make sure we never find the end. And that almost certainly will require a good deal more than lucky breaks. How is it possible that there is no end? What we know is that someday our sun will burn out and our nearest neighbor is some three and a half or more light years away. So far we have only gone to the moon and that with great effort and expense. Furthermore, unless there is a change in our nature, life may be extinguished from this planet long before the sun expires. A biblical passage found in the 24th chapter of Matthew indicates that man will actually come to that point. Notice it. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Yes, the Bible explains that man will get himself into such a mess that cosmicide will not only be possible, but will occur except for the intervention of the Creator God. Now, whether one chooses to believe the Bible or not, one must conclude that this statement made nearly 2,000 years ago is now possible. Furthermore, it only became possible less than 60 years ago. Who could have imagined the power of the atom in 30 AD? Now, as Bryson says, we really are at the beginning of it all. The trick, of course, is to make sure we never find the end. Yet, why not? If you are only here for an instant, what difference does it make whether life on this planet lasts or comes to an abrupt end? If there is no life beyond the grave, you will never know what happened, and neither will anyone else. Whatever temporary pleasures one has today are meaningless. In that case, perhaps the grassroots band is right, live for today. But what if they are wrong? The same book that tells us the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. It also tells us that there truly is the possibility of life after death. Now, either there is or there isn't. There is no in-between. And if the few short years that we have on this physical flesh are all that there is, we may well follow the youthful refrain of meaninglessness. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, if, in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. While numerous religions teach that there is life after death, biblical Christianity offers a valid explanation of the means to eternal life. And the true account of this is far more interesting than most people can imagine. 
As we have seen, the beginning of matter is a remarkable thing, not likely to happen by mere chance. As Bryson believes, and he is not alone in this opinion, if this book has a lesson, it is that we are awfully lucky to be here. To attain any kind of life in this universe of ours appears to be quite an achievement. So one must wonder, did all this happen as a grand accident? Did you truly evolve from some primordial pool of non-living chemicals in a universe that came into being through blind luck? Or is it just possible that there really is intelligence behind matter and all the remarkable miracles of life? Former British Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill believed that great events in this world are not a matter of chance, but design. I will say that he must indeed have a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below. Yes, indeed. And what is that purpose? Have you ever considered that it might be wise to at least explore the possibility that there could truly be some grand purpose being worked out here below? And if that purpose includes living beyond the grave, that it might be wise to prepare for it? The Bible claims to be the expression of the Creator God, the one who made all matter. So what does this book say about our potential future? The Bible tells us that man is made of the dust of the earth, something that science agrees with. Yet it tells us that this physical life is not the end, but how can this be? Jesus Christ is a central figure of the Bible, and it claims that he was killed, buried for three days, and afterward resurrected to life again. That is what the Bible tells us, and tens of millions around the world believe this to be true. But is it? If one man can be resurrected from the dead, then we must conclude that the same is possible for others. And this is another claim of the Bible. But again, is this true? Either it is or it isn't. So what evidence do we have nearly 2,000 years later that Jesus was resurrected from the dead to inherit eternal life? Just because tens or even hundreds of millions of people believe it does not make it so. We don't want to follow the crowd in an elaborate lie, but neither should we reject something so important without looking at the facts. During the remainder of this program, we're going to consider two facts of history related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fact number one is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ were prophesied in great detail hundreds of years prior to these events. There are many scriptures foretelling that one would come and give his life in exchange for people's sins. So many that we don't have time to bring them all out on this program, to read them all. But here is one from the prophet Isaiah, which we find in the 52nd and 53rd chapters of the book named after that prophet. Here we find the reason for his death, along with specific details as to how it happened. For example, in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 52, we are told that he would be beaten so brutally that it would be hard to tell him or recognize him as a man. Notice this. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many as were astonished at you, so his visage, or his appearance, was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now notice this detail in the next verse. 
so shall he sprinkle many nations. What does this mean? In what way could he sprinkle many nations? Why would he do so, and for what purpose? The why is found in the next chapter. Surely he has borne our griefs, in other words, our sicknesses, and carried our sorrows or our pains. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities or our sins. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The scripture goes on to explain what our attitude would be and how God would lay on him the sins of us all. It also shows how he would take this upon himself voluntarily and humbly. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Now this is an amazing thing. How could one man do such a thing? How could the beating and murder of someone pay the penalty for my sins and for your sins? For example, if I break a law and am fined a heavy fine by the magistrate, it is possible that someone else, perhaps a friend or relative, could step up to the bench and pay the fine for me. It is even theoretically possible, though not likely to happen in this world, that someone would go to jail in my place or even suffer the death penalty in my place. But in the latter case, he could only do it one time. It would be the exchange of one life for another, a one-time equal swap. Remarkably, this prophecy was made nearly 700 years prior to the reported death and resurrection of one who claimed to fulfill the prophecy. Furthermore, a scroll with this prophecy in it is dated one or two centuries prior to Jesus Christ. And further still, we come to a second remarkable fact of history. There were eyewitness accounts confirming that a man named Jesus was a great prophet, that he performed many indisputable miracles, and that he was taken and crucified according to the details of many earlier prophecies. As the Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Now all of this is interesting, but is it proof? After all, there are at least a few people, perhaps numbering in the dozens, maybe even the hundreds, I really don't know how many, who claim to have seen Elvis Presley alive after his death. So the fact that some few hundred people claim to have seen Jesus alive after his death is not proof of itself. But, and here is perhaps the most important fact of history, many of these people who knew Jesus personally were dramatically changed after his death and were themselves willing to die to convince others of the truth of the resurrection. 
Now, my friends, there has never been a lack of individuals who are willing to give their lives for a cause. But few, if any, will give their lives for something they know to be a lie. Yet history tells us that 11 of Christ's 12 apostles, those who knew him intimately and who saw him after the resurrection, gave their lives for preaching the resurrection from the dead. Apart from Judas Iscariot, who disqualified himself and was replaced by Matthias, everyone except John, according to history, died a martyr. One would think that at least one or several would have, as we say, chickened out. Why would they die if they knew it was all a lie? Furthermore, Jesus' brother James, who we are told in John 7, verse 5, did not believe in him, became a believer and a prominent leader in the early church after Jesus' death and resurrection. Still further, we are told that a man named Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, persecuted the early Christians until he was struck down and became one of the most ardent followers of Christ, suffering beatings, stonings, and many other severe forms of punishment and ultimately death because he became convinced of the truth of the resurrection. These men were not playing games. They were alive when the death and the resurrection took place. They were not reporting a sighting such as that of Elvis for publicity or because they were a bit deranged in their thinking. These were intelligent, educated men. In some cases, men who did not believe when Jesus was alive, but who became so convinced that they were willing to die for the resurrection. The mantra of many is, live for today. But those who are wise prepare for their future. Each of us has a rendezvous with death. And when that fateful day comes, most of us will want to know, is there life after today? Here at Tomorrow's World, we believe it is wise to prepare, while it is still called today for the day called tomorrow. So come back next week, same time, same place, to learn more about Tomorrow's World. And be sure to check out the literature related to today's program on our website. See you next week, right here. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The preceding program is produced by the Living Church of God.